Hi, everybody. It's Sally Wagner. Welcome to High Frequency Mindset Podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome our guest, Kellen Flukiger. Kellen, welcome. Thank you. And I want to do two things. And first of all, I want to acknowledge you for being the worker of doing a podcast. Podcast is a labor of love. And those that do it are doing a good thing to add good to the world. And I love what you're doing, what you're about. And I just wanted to honor you and thank you on your own show. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very eager to have our conversation. I want to introduce you to our audience. So bear with me and then we'll talk. Kellen, executive speaker, performer, catalyst. I absolutely love the catalyst. Coming through decades of depression, addictions, life-threatening illness, and a near-death experience, Kellen has become the ultimate catalyst to help motivated people melt barriers, move mountains, and mobilize superpowers to achieve their true desires. As a coach and keynote speaker, Kellen's masterful approach helps people get past old stories, change beliefs, and create a life context to reach even goals that seemed impossible. All fabulous. And Kellen, again, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate the opportunity to share some time. When you read that intro, it's like, wow, that sounds cool. Fun, <laughs> yeah, who the, is he? Yeah, well, the fun I part. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, the fun part is I listen to all that. And I... You know, oftentimes we write marketing hype and we make it sound cool, you know, because we're trying to market and market the best things. And as I listen to all those things, every one of them is, is a true thing. Yeah. And it sounds incredible. Some of them I hear and I'm like, I wonder if people believe any of that, you yeah. know, but it's all, it's real. And I think that's the key to effective marketing, uh, that it's true, it's authentic. That's what connects with people, that authenticity. Absolutely. It is. It is. And it's over many years and I'm 66 now, so I've had a lot of years to do all that, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> all fabulous. So we were talking a little bit before uh, and you you shared uh, an experience that you had a near-death experience and I'm fascinated by that. I, I really hadn't anticipated focusing on that quite so soon um, but it, it's such a, a pivotal event. Um, could you share a little bit about how it changed things for you afterward? Well, you know, I, I, in order to do that, well, I got to back up 10 years and I will. So I had a long career, all that jazz of high powered executive and blah, blah, blah is all true. I had a 30 year career in the energy industry in the United States and Canada and, you know, C-suite positions and testified before Congress and blah, blah, blah. Made a lot of money and had a high profile. And in some circles, I was a one name character, probably because flukiger is so hard to pronounce. But anyway... <laughs> All of that was true, but behind the scenes, I had lived all my life isolated with depression, convinced I wasn't good enough. I was raised in a physically abusive environment and internalized all that into not being good enough. Not enough, never will be. Mm -hmm. But also believed that you couldn't talk to anybody, so I never did. So I lived from when I left home 17 till I was 52, so 35 years emotionally isolated. Now I was married and divorced three times, principally because I didn't know how to have a relationship and I didn't know how to be a person. 
Uh, I created enormous career success and then a lot of self-sabotage, which often goes with depression and believing that you're not good enough. <clears throat> In 2007, after 35 years of that kind of roller coaster stuff, rehab and all the rest, I was at the pinnacle, making all kinds of money and uh, but and so much money that my $3,000 a week cocaine habit didn't even matter. And that's how ridiculous the the contrast was in, in my life. And I came home in August uh, of 2007 <clears throat> on a Friday night. I have 10 children. Four of my 10 children were living with me as a single dad. Three were grown up and married and three were with, it's embarrassing to say, but one of my exes. Anyway, <clears throat> I was getting ready to go out party for the weekend. And um, suddenly I felt the urge to turn on the TV, which was weird because I didn't watch TV. And I emphasized that I picked up the remote and I looked at it and I'm like, I didn't know how to turn it on. So I had to ask one of the kids and my 16 year old daughter, she punched some buttons and threw the remote at me and left the room and it landed on a program called intervention, which I had never heard of, but it turns out to be a reality TV show for busted people and families stage interventions. And the protagonist in this thing was a high ranking executive with a cocaine problem. So I, I watched this for about 10 minutes and I said, yeah, I'm not watching this crap. And I turned it off and <clears throat> did some other stuff and got ready to leave. And I felt just absolutely compelled to turn on the TV again. So I did. And the program started over. No, I don't have a DVR and no, it wasn't on the schedule and no, it can't do that. I, I, I got that, but it did. And so I was freaked out. And so I thought, Okay, uh, and I watched the program and it went badly. The guy screamed at his family and said he didn't have a problem and stomped out and all the rest. But it freaked me out so bad that I didn't go out to party. I went to bed. When I went to bed, I went to hell. And what I mean by that is I went somewhere that seemed out of body and it was like being in a theater and I could hear voices and see kind of uh, scenes on the stage and the scenes of my life were all scenes of my life. Not in the flash your life for your eyes before you die. Not like that. Slow played out scenes focusing on one thing, suffering, suffering I had experienced as a kid, all the way through the suffering I had inflicted on everybody else as an addict and my failed relationships and everything else. And the suffering was so intense, I've never felt anything like it. But after a long time, a voice said, it is enough. I woke up <clears throat> and the sun was shining in the window, which was weird because the windows faced west. I got up and I realized it was five o'clock Saturday afternoon. So I'd been somewhere for nearly 18 hours and I realized I'd been invited to change. I didn't know how to do it or what to do or where I was going or anything. And I just knew I was done. So I threw away the drugs that I had, <clears throat> a quick cold turkey, 3000 bucks a week to zero in one day. So that got me sober, but it didn't do anything to do with about the depression and the isolation that I had created, never talked to anybody. That happened two weeks later, the other shoe kind of, and I didn't, I knew I had to get out of the industry and like completely start over. Cause I knew if I stayed where I was, I was dead, but I didn't quit right away. And in the position I used to have, I used to get all kinds of free stuff, tickets to this and expensive things because I made important decisions and people wanted to be nice to Kellen. So one of the things I got was a pair of tickets to see a Yo-Yo Ma concert. Now, if you know classical music, you know who that is. And if you don't, that's fine. But in the classical world, that's like, ah, you know, he's, he's the best there is. And so we, I had two tickets, right? And I'm single again. And I didn't want to waste this other expensive ticket. It's like, 
okay. So I asked in the groups that I managed who likes classical music. And some lady in one of the groups said, well, I do. And I looked at her and I said, have I ever given you anything before? Because I gave stuff away all the time. And she said, no. I said, okay, fine. See you there. So I gave her the ticket. <clears throat> we met at the venue. The concert was spectacular. And halfway through, I had this feeling coming come over me that I recognized from two weeks before as kind of otherworldly. And the voice said to me, <clears throat> you need to marry this woman. And I said, you're insane. <laughs> uh, I've screwed that up three times officially if some other mess is in between that's not happening and uh, later that night we were backstage because they were backstage passes too and so then the voice came back and said yeah <clears throat> and you need to tell her tonight <laughs> and I said yeah you know she can have me arrested like for harassment and stuff like she works in one of my like no but you don't win those arguments. So I did, and it went about like you would have expected. Are you insane? What are you talking about, et cetera. But she didn't call the cops, so that was good. Um, <clears throat> within two weeks, I mean, I'm telling it sort of in a lighthearted way, but it was deadly serious. In two weeks, within two weeks, she had her own set of experiences. She walked away from her longstanding career. I left millions of dollars of contracts and we walked off into the sunset together. And five, six months ago, almost six months ago, we celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary. Fabulous. So that is the prelude you need to understand the near-death experience. Mm -hmm. I started at that time. I completely changed my whole life. Got out of the all whole business I was in. I started becoming an author and a coach and helping people live their best lives and all the good stuff that you do and that we do now with that divine uh, invitation. And so we were busy building that, building a coaching business. I became an author. I've written 16 books. One of them is Tightrope of Depression, uh, which tells all the story and all the gory details, if you want to know a lot more than I just told you. And <clears throat> 10 or 11 years later in 2018, which is now four years ago, <clears throat> right this minute, four years ago, we were on a cruise. Joy and I never been on a cruise. Oh, I didn't tell you the best part. Her name is Joy. <laughs> Like you can't make this stuff up, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah you can. Okay. So that's like for real. Anyway, we decided to go on this cruise and it was in the Baltic Sea, which I didn't really know where it was. And it was over there somewhere, but runs east and west. We visited St. Petersburg, which of course will never happen again. But anyway, at the end of the cruise, I got sick. And um, in Oslo, I got really sick. And I thought, oh, flew and something. So we flew to Amsterdam, flew home. It was over anyway. And I was so sick on the way home of the pole flight from Amsterdam to Edmonton. That's where we live now. But today they would have, you know, thrown me out of the plane, thrown me out the window, right? Mm -hmm. In those days, they just took care of you. So they brought me ice and everything because I was obviously feverish. And when we landed in Edmonton, uh, got sick on a Monday. We landed on Tuesday. Wednesday and Thursday, I was just determined that I was just had a bad flu and I was going to be okay. And by Friday, it was day five. It was so bad. And the day number will matter in a minute. I was sick. I realized this is not okay. So I went to the walk-in clinic, which they have here in Canada. And uh, <clears throat> I'd been there a lot of times. It was our neighborhood walk-in and they knew me. And the, the lady, I had sent Joy in ahead of time because they had a sign on the wall said, if you have a cough, you know, let us know. So I sent them in ahead of time and said, however, you tell her and she came out to look at me and she took one look at me said you can't come in here and there's nothing we can do for you anyway go to the go to er right now and i'm like 
okay. So we drove to the emergency room and, you know, you go to the ER and you expect to be there, I don't know, an hour, two, three, depends on triage and all that other stuff. And in 10 minutes, I was in a private room. I didn't even know they had private rooms in the ER. I'd only ever seen those curtain thingies, right? So I'm in a private room with a door and in 10 more minutes, the doctor comes in and I'm thinking, this is not good. So <clears throat> they did some more, some tests and x-rays and MRIs and a bunch of stuff and kept telling me worse news. Well, you have pneumonia. Well, you have pneumonia in both lungs. Well, it's the worst pneumonia we've ever seen. And there's something else that we don't know, but it's bad. So no question about you being admitted to the hospital. We just have to find a bed. Then they came back in a couple of hours and said, yeah, uh, we're probably going to put you in the ICU. Uh, and then they came back in a couple hours and said, uh, yeah, we're going to have to put you in biological isolation, which if you've never been, that's like biohazard level four, double doors, yeah, yeah. airlock, the whole exactly. nine yards. And, and then they came back finally and said, um, and by this time, it's like close to midnight. I'd sent Joy home because we had dogs and cats he had to take care of. And I figured I'm going to be here. So whatever. And they came back in and said, do we have permission to intubate you and do anything we need to do to preserve your life? And I said, what? Uh, okay. And like, I'm terrified at this point. So I went into meditation and I, that was a practice I'd had for all of my life since I was a teenager. And I could feel my body and spirit separating. Something I'd never felt before. I could, it's like unzipping. I could feel it coming apart. So by this time I was trembling so badly, I could hardly control my movements. But anyway, I picked up my phone. And I sent Joy a text that had three lines on it. First line was ICU. The second line was isolation slash intubation. And the last line said, I may be dying. And uh, she didn't see it. She was asleep. <clears throat> but at three in the morning, she got a phone call from the hospital. You never want to get. And the nurse said, uh, are you coming? And she said, what? And then she saw my text. And so uh, sometime right after that, I died. My heart stopped. And at that time, <clears throat> I came to spiritually in a gray room. I was horizontal like I was on the stretcher. And the walls and the ceiling and floor, everything was sort of this sort of photo card gray. And <clears throat> I could see over my left shoulder, there was a doorway. And I, I wanted to be at the door. So then I'm standing at the doorway and I'm leaning on the door jamb on my right shoulder on the gray side. And the other side of the door was white. It wasn't streaming through, but it was white on that side and gray on my side. And on the other side of the door, on the door jamb, like right there, was someone else looking at me. And uh, he looked at me and he said, uh, <clears throat> do you want to come home? And like we talk as coaches about holding space, I can tell you there's never been any space in any universe that was like that space <laughs> right then, right there. Like I knew where I was. I knew what was going on. I knew who I was talking to and I knew what the question was. And I'm like, do, and, and the thing is, is there was no expectation about how I would answer the question. Do you want to come home? And I thought, wow. And I thought of everything we've been doing now for almost 11 years. In 2018, it was 11 because the end of 2007, that happened. I'm thinking, we've done all this stuff. And I thought about joy and the plans we had still to do and everything else. And all this stuff went through my mind slowly, not fast. And we talked about all this stuff. And finally, I said, well, I'm not done. Okay. <laughs> 
Neither's the dog. Ah, woof. I'm not done. And um, <clears throat> that, that was uh, the end of that, that conversation. And that topic wasn't ever, he just said, okay. So I'm quite sure that that's when they were able to restart my heart. Uh, the next day, I was in a coma for nearly three weeks, two and a half weeks, 17 days. The next day we were back at the door and uh, the, that previous day's conversation wasn't brought up again. You know, that was decided. So then the second day there was a, okay, you're going to stay. So what are you going to do? And so we talked about coaching and the mission and the stuff that I feel. And then I had an experience that I don't know if you've ever seen that Jodie Foster movie contact. Yes. It, it, that's the closest thing I've ever seen to that. It was so overwhelming and intense, like fire hose, impossible. To, felt like if I hadn't been in some kind of a protective bubble, I would have been incinerated, but I was able to see, perceive and participate in an infinite space for a long time. Um, at the end, I had four powerful things, and this will be directly for your audience here. Here are the four things that I learned in that place. Number one, you, no matter what you think or where you've been, you're a divine creation that has been intentionally created. There's no accidents. That's true. The second thing is you were given gifts and talents on purpose for this space that we have here. Number three, you also have a mission and purpose that you not only agreed to, but you were stoked about before you came. And the fourth one is that all the help you need is available from both sides of that door. And so I sat there, I stood there breathless, you know, after I, I actually have no idea how long, and I'm sure time doesn't mean anything in those dimensions anyway, but I said, well, since that's true, why do we settle for crumbs? And I don't know if in the economy of heaven, brevity is a virtue, but the answer was four words. He looked at me and he said, because you don't believe. And I felt like hyperventilating, like, you know, I didn't facepalm, but you thought about it, like, duh. Yeah. And so I said, okay, what can I do to help with that? Like, I'm going to be here, like, oh, glad you asked. So then what followed was an entire framework about belief changing, which I wrote in a second book. I wrote a book called Meeting God at the Door, which talks about this whole experience. And then the second book is called The Book of Context, which is an entire process for understanding and addressing and changing beliefs that you have, even deeply seated ones, that doesn't involve a white-knuckled fight. But anyway, so... I was breathless with anticipation and excitement, even though I was gonna be in a coma for two more weeks. The third conversation was the next day and people have often asked me, how did you know it was the next day? And the answer is, I don't know, you just know, okay? It was the next day and we're back and this time I'm buzzing, I'm excited, I'm repeating this stuff over and over and over again that I learned and everything else and we're back. I'm like excited and he looked at me and he said, it's just one question again. And he looked at me and he said, are you sure? And I thought, holy crap, am I sure? What do you mean, am I sure? Am I stupid? Am I missing something? Am I biting off more than I can chew? What do you mean? Am I sure? And so I went through every possible, you know, have I missed something? Am I biting off more than I can chew? Can I really do this? Like what? And when we got all done, I finally said, I'm sure. 
And so um, the conversation ended, nothing was said, but it ended with the finality that I knew we were done. And, and then some two weeks later, uh, because that was three days, uh, I came, was, was brought out of the coma and I'd lost 35 pounds and was completely atrophied and couldn't walk and couldn't move. And the, I had, what it turned out that I had was necrotizing MRSA superbug in, in both lungs and in my bloodstream. Yeah. So aggressive, it attacked the plastic tubing I was wearing and had in my neck and they had to take it out of this side and put it in this side. Yeah. They told me when I left that if I ever got a fever again in my life, it was 911 because my lungs were, they couldn't understand it. And what he, the infectious disease, uh, the head of the university infectious disease specialist, he said to me, he said, uh, the 10-day mortality rate, like in COVID, we talked 2 or 3% mortality rate. He told me the 10-day mortality rate of what you had is 100%. Yeah. He said, my, so, of course it killed you. My husband died from something very similar, so, yeah. yeah. So, of course it killed you. Uh, like, there was no other possible outcome. So, I asked him when I left the hospital several weeks later, you know, will I ever get my lungs back? Because of course I was wheezing like crazy and I could, couldn't walk or anything else. And I've spent the last four years doing it. And they told me two years to never. And true to form, I don't believe in any of that stuff. So I'm certainly not back up to the aerobic capacity I was when I earned my black belt in martial arts and everything else. But it's 90% or 80% anyway. And so that's the experience. And that's what I learned. And it spawned a number of books. But more importantly than anything I did is the message for your listeners. I don't care if you're starting a business. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what's happened to you. I was 52 when the first experience happened. I was 63, 62, 63. I can't remember. I'd have to do the math. <clears throat> Four years, 62, I'm 66 now. And the second thing happened. So it doesn't matter. There's no limit to the impact you can have here now. If you take ownership of your life, you make a choice to choose your response to all of the things that happen to all of us, and you live into your divine gifts. Yeah. And, and the message that you shared about because you don't believe, because they don't believe, I think that's, that's so important because the... It, what I remind people is, it's not what you don't know that holds you back. It's what you do know that's not true that holds you back. And so we believe so many things that are not true. And because of that, we don't believe the, the truth about our nature and who we are. That's right. And there's no, like, I, I mean, I have clients, I built a practice with clients all over the world. And you When you coach for a long time, I don't know what a long time is. I've been at it now for 13 years. And I know some have been 20, 30, 40. But you hear the same things repeatedly. I can't. It's yeah. not. I don't have that. I don't know what my gifts are. I don't have enough clarity. If I just had clarity, you know. And all of those are really rooted in the same thing. And they're rooted in a fear. Mm -hmm. There's three legs to that. So one is you fear you don't really have anything 
or you fear that you're not enough, good enough, fast enough, smart enough, too old, too young, too thin, too fat, too something, or you believe I'll go all in and try and then I'll fail. And those three pieces of fear keep you because you let them from living a, a, what I call the ultimate life, a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy. And if you want to get rid of it anytime, you're free to let it go. Absolutely. Because fear, those fears that you just mentioned, those are shadow fears. They're not real, right? And, and I think that's the case most of the time with fear. It's, you know, from, from the Psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I think the key word there is shadow. Uh, because it's not real. And, and we, we get so caught up in the shadow of it that we don't give ourselves credit enough for being able to shine that full light of knowledge and understanding. And that makes the shadow go away. Light does chase away the darkness yeah. and gives you sure footedness. And, and there will be days, maybe many days in a row, we have to walk right to the edge of the light and take a few steps in the dark. Yeah. Hey, go ahead. Because the other choice is to stay shriveled up in the chair and make up reasons why not to. Yeah. Like, why would you do that? Yeah, exactly. And, and yet that's how we're programmed, <laughs> you know, we're, uh, I, I had a seventh grade math teacher, I still remember to this day, and he used to say, excuses do not excuse and explanations do not explain. And so <laughs> the, the message is ultimately, you just got to do it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Different context. He was probably talking about homework, and yet it's a fabulous <laughs> life lesson. <laughs> you know, we all are living in the homework because yeah, the truth of my experience is that you, each one of you listening right now, have gifts and talents and a mission. You were given those, and you were excited about it when you came here. What you do with those talents and how you do that mission is going to be the gift you give back when you go home. Yeah. Period. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing uh, from probably multiple people have expressed this sentiment. But what do you think of the notion that one of the biggest fears is that we are so powerful, <laughs> that we are so capable? You know, and, I don't know who said it originally. Uh, Marianne yeah. Williamson was the one yeah. that I remember. And she said, our deepest fear is not that we are nothing, but that we are powerful beyond belief. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's what you're afraid of or not, and I'm not going to disagree with her. And if if that is a fearful thing for you, you're afraid if you succeed, you'll be able to do it and, you know, all that stuff. You know, you're, you're built by and backed by the divine. Yeah. So why would you or I be too afraid to let your light shine? Mm -hmm. yeah. you're built by and backed by the universe the divine god call it whatever you want you know what i mean you've all felt it sometime or another those inspirations those yearnings those pullings those feelings well they come from somewhere and you have a choice every time you can ignore them or you can lean into them i learned the hard way after lots of years the joy the success the power is leaning into them even when they go over rough ground. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I, when you said choice, I think that's another key word to focus on. So many people are so programmed, I call it mind apps, um, programming paradigms, whatever we call it, they're running on autopilot and they've lost that power of choice. They've conceded it to programming and, and everything else. And when you regain that power of choice, that opens everything for you. It does. And I'm sure part of your work in the vibrational stuff is helping people reclaim, you know, if you've given it up, okay, no harm, no foul. Like, like you don't need to spend an hour or a day or a year being angry and frustrated at the lost time and beat yourself up. That will accomplish nothing except waste more time. If you come to the conclusion that you have abdicated partially or fully your choice, your, your opportunities. Okay. I love you anyway. So does she. So go now today and say, you know what? I'm done with that. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever that was, it was, but I'm done now today. I'm going to do a new thing. Of course. Absolutely. We, we want to put our gaze to the future and moving forward, not always in the rear view mirror. Well, I don't know if anybody that, anybody that drives looking in the rear view mirror is guaranteed to have a wreck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yet I think a lot of people live their lives in that way. Uh, forward looking is not an option. It's always looking back and, you know, what if, if only all of those kinds of things, holding themselves back through their own limiting beliefs. And yet what an amazing world is available when we shift our gaze forward. One of the concrete manifestations of the truth you just taught is <clears throat> I have 10 kids, as I mentioned earlier, and because of my addictions and divorces and stuff, some of them are still estranged and I have a lot of opportunity there still, and I'm gratefully pursuing that. But there was taught, there have been times when all the difficulties in that they have experienced in their lives, they have blamed on me. You suck. You weren't there. You did this. You did that. Therefore, all this stuff. I used to willingly accept that, beat the crap out of myself. If I'd only this, if, if, if all the stuff that you, you just said. And I believed that so much that that's what contributed to depression and drugs and a lot of other things. And here are two truths. Truth number one is I actually have no idea what would have happened if I had done something differently anyway. I have a story about what would have happened and that things would have been this way or that way. But I know lots of people, my brother, who, who lived a very well-planned, well-organized, single marriage life, had kids and everything else, and has had all kinds of stuff with kids. So you, whoever you are, you actually have no idea what would have happened if you hadn't X, Y, Z. You don't know that. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of truth. And the second piece of truth is the past does not determine the future yeah. unless you let it. And as long as I carried that shame and guilt as great big rocks in my backpack, it didn't repair anything that had ever happened. What it did do is it weighed me down so I could be, I could do nothing today. It, it covered my light. It limited my opportunity today by carrying those rocks. So forgiving yourself 
I'm not saying ignore things that happen, make whatever amends you can, sure. But forgiving yourself is an energetic choice yes. to no longer allow the events of the past to have power in the present. Absolutely. And it is so vitally necessary that we do that uh, because those shame, guilt, all of those things are such low frequency emotions uh when and you aptly describe them as big rocks in the backpack i mean they just weigh us down and shame i i sometimes think of it as a preemptive strike when when we're in that shame vibration uh, we we hold ourselves back from relation and connection because it's like it, we're rejecting ourselves we think well they're going to reject me too so why would i even try Right. Absolutely. So uh, it's self-defeating to stay at that level. We, we've got to move beyond it and have the grace to forgive ourselves and uh, open up the possibilities of reconnecting. I absolutely couldn't agree more. It's it's funny. I Like I said, I've written a bunch of books and the one I just finished in December, which will be out this month, is um, titled Forgiveness, A Journey of Courage to a Place of Freedom and Power. Yeah. And it explores both the process and the effects of forgiving others and forgiving yourself in, an, an, in opening your heart and unle unleashing, if you will, your ability to add good to the world in the present. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Um, and when is it coming out? Ah, uh, my wife said, uh, my wife is our publisher. She runs a publishing company and publishes not only my books, but client books. Because after I started writing books, I realized I knew how. So then I wrote the book about writing books called The Story Arc. And oh, this is a fabulous. book about to help people with stories, life stories, write their books and create courses and do stuff with them. So anyway, um, that's why, I mean, she published the book. She told me it's going to be the 20th, I think. So nice. 15, so, 16, 16 days. Yeah, yeah we're, we're recording on the second, so not too far away. Awesome. Yeah, by the time this is out, maybe it'll be up already. Yeah, fabulous. So I, I just have so many other things to ask you and to talk about. However, <laughs> with time constraints, I'll limit it to two more questions. And the first one, and here's my setup for it. So in my coaching, I use an acronym MSG, and that stands for mindset, skill set, get off your asset, because I think it really encapsulates some important principles there. And as you look over your amazing journey, if you could choose one overarching principle that you believe contributes to your success, what would it be? Love. You have to love yourself and you have to love other people. One of the things that I notice uh, a group, and it, it, it infected me, even though I was a big high party executive and all this stuff. When I first got to be a coach, I was terrified of closing clients. I didn't know how to close clients. I sucked at it. I never had a full practice. I couldn't make money at it. I thought, you know, that, you know, every coach that's ever started knows this story, especially spiritual ones, because if you like, maybe I should give it away and I don't know how to charge money and oh dear. And, you know, that's where the term broke healer came from. Right. Um, I love working with coaches because I don't have that problem anymore and I have a full coaching practice. And the secret to that is to learn to love people and understand that loving them 
best includes a professional relationship where they have invested in themselves and they give you permission because they've paid you to hold you accountable. That's actually how you can have the biggest impact. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you're doing something wrong and something wrong with selling or anything else is just nonsense. You're depriving them of your best skill as a coach. Anyway, love is the fabric that holds the universe together. Love yourself, love your clients, love people around you. You don't need anybody's permission to love them. Just love them because you said so. So the overarching principle that cleans up so many messes, and I don't mean pretend things away. I'm not talking ignorance or Pollyanna or anything else. I'm talking just the purity of recognizing our current condition and our individual obligation to do the very best we can to add good to the world. Yeah. I love that. When, when you referenced the fabric of creation, I was reminded of a quote from Walt Whitman from Leaves of Grass, and, and it says, and a kelson of creation is love. It's like that undergirding is everywhere, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So last question, how can people get in touch with you? Um, so there's a funny thing I say, because I guess I ask that question all the time. And, and the funny thing I say is with a name like Kellen Flukiger, I can't hide. <laughs> so if you spell my name right, you cannot not find me. Uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Amazon, all the books, Spotify. I create music on a recording studio. I've got a podcast with 700 episodes. Like you can't not find me. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that's actually most important and near and dear to my heart right now is just this last week, we're just unfolding an initiative that is the, the goal of which is to raise a billion dollars to deal with the Ukrainian refugee um, displacement, replacement, resettling and uh, work. My wife is Ukrainian and we have a refugee family coming to stay with us this Saturday, flying out of Warsaw tomorrow. And, and her daughter, lady and her daughter and her husband, of course, is still in the army. <clears throat> and uh, so it's near and dear to our heart because my wife's dad was born in Odessa. And so that's the reason I've picked that. But I, um, and it's focused around the elimination of fear. And so uh, I don't have a URL. We're in the process of creating some things, but it's going to be focused on that, raising some uh, a gigantic project. And I've already enlisted some heavy weights to started the process of enlisting some heavyweights to get behind that. And that's actually the most important thing to me right now is to figure out how to get that done. Yeah, that's fabulous. Thank you so much. And everybody make sure you check the show notes. We'll have all of that information in there to share with you uh, and uh, all of the ways that you can connect with Kellen. Kellen, thank you again so much for being here today. You're welcome. And I just want to add, since I don't have any details about the Ukraine thing, if you just follow me on Facebook, it'll be in there in the next probably four or five days as we get URLs done and some things underway. Awesome. So everybody, make sure you check the show notes. Make sure you follow Kellen on Facebook so that you can stay up to date on how you can contribute to that fabulous, amazing effort. So thank you again. Thank you for thank having me. Absolutely. It was such a joy to talk with you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Make sure you tune in next time for High Frequency Mindset Podcast.